Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are kicking off our three-part Herman Melville Spectacular. We're going to be talking about Benito Serino, which is Melville's 1855 novella about... um, We're going to get into it and we should note that we don't do spoiler warnings for things that are over a hundred years on this show. Um, we talk about pretty famous in a lot of cases, pretty old books. For example, you don't get a spoiler warning for Frankenstein, but Benito Serino is a rare case where we actually think the initial experience of reading it without knowing the plot is pretty important to how the book works. So keep that in mind if you want to read it. First, we are extremely excited to welcome to the pod Peter Coviello, professor of American literature at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Pete is a Melville scholar, our friend and comrade, and our very first guest host. <laughs> so, Pete, would you tell us a little more about your academic interests and why you agreed to come talk with us about this novella? <laughs> I can tell you about both of those things. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for uh, for having me, and I'm I'm happy to 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 talk. Uh, at great length about Melville, uh, I should say like, so my thing is like, I'm a 19th century Americanist. I study 19th century America. I've been doing that for a couple decades. The things that most interested me when I first started writing about it were um, queer theory and uh, imaginings of sociality and errant imaginings of how people could be together. And, you know, if you're thinking about the queer 19th century, you do not not think of Melville. You know what I mean? Like there's, just you know, any, anybody who's read Moby Dick can just think about Ishmael and Queequeg, but there's also someone Billy Budd, which was turned into all these operas in the 20th century. Anyway, I would I ended up writing a lot about Melville, and also just like you know, you're a 19th century American, so you teach a lot of the 19th century, and I was teaching, you know, Serino, and probably like you guys as teachers, like I traffic too readily in superlatives that are <laughs> <laughs> probably you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, it's not always yeah. the best idea, you know what I mean? But like I was as I more and more taught this, I just kept saying, you could argue that this is the greatest, most enraged piece of literary fiction in the American canon. Yeah. And that's how like when I teach it, I would just hook that would be my hook. Like I'm gonna try to demonstrate that over a few weeks, you know. Um Wait, do we not and- all do that? I feel like when I taught Invisible Man, I was like Oh, this is the greatest novel of the 20th century. And my students like gaped at me. <laughs> and I was like, when you're at the front, you can say what you want. Like, I'm at the front. I get to say this. You know, I'm always like, if you want to take a shot at that uh, declaration, you go ahead. But you exactly. got to give me another one, you know? Um, but so this, you know, for years of teaching Melville and everything, this Benito Serino was a, a way into so much stuff. At first, I was teaching it alongside. Tom's Cabin, you know, like the great bestseller of 19th century America, the like pinnacle of uh, sort of liberal sentimentality as an anti-slavery politics, or not even uh, like like just as a sort of abolitionist politics. And this book seems such a a, a complicated, again, rageful response to Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that's just how I started thinking about it. In later years, I've started to think about things like secularism its relation to sort of what you might call it empire, basically, what the Christianization of empire 
And this book also came to speak really volubly in that context, too. Oh, man. Katie, are you okay right now? I feel like this is your full favorite. <laughs> yes, just every, everything that... <laughs> yeah, Uncle Tom's Cabin is a book that I, I can just un, uh, uh, just fully enjoy, just kick back and enjoy reading. And uh, to have it to have it here with uh, with the combined with the Melville is just like, I don't even... Even though it's the anti-Uncle Tom's Cabin, I still somehow just love them together and it's perfect. No, dude, that seems totally like I'm like I do think, as I'm sure we'll talk about more, this book is a like furious rejoinder to Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm-hmm. like and, and particularly to like the reading public it imagines Uncle Tom's Cabin has fomented and solidified. That doesn't mean it's like a generous reading of Uncle Tom's Cabin. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, no. He's not like the most well disposed. You know, so like it's it's weird teaching them in I just finished teaching Moby Dick, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and this in sequence. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. No. And I. Yeah. And I. I mean, I. I'm an 18th century history. You know, as like as Katie is. Like, I'm like, no. But the sentimental novel is actually cool, and it does interesting political (laughs) stuff. You know. But I love it. But just uh, did did an episode on on Native Son, which is also like a big rejection of 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 the sentimental. Um. And yeah. yeah, So. And Uncle Thomas, particularly, yeah, bigger Thomas. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, again, I don't, I mean, this is a whole other thing, but I teach, you know, the Baldwin essay, which is so moving and everything, but I don't think he's exactly right about Uncle Tom's Cabin. I think Uncle Tom's Cabin is mm. is involved in things that are thicker and weirder than that, mm. like, gloriously polemical essay quite allows. I'd say yeah. the same with um, Peter Serino. Like, he's, he's <laughs> yeah, not totally. being an especially generous reader of Harry Beecher Stowe. Totally. Well, he's a very bad reader of Richard Wright, but that's like my, you know, I have a deep investment there. So yeah, in Richard Wright, in Richard Wright, yeah, 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 and ba- yeah, it's an interesting thing about that that Baldwin essay. Like, it's he's he's doing a thing, and the thing he's doing is so right. Like the liberal trying to save him or herself from damnation. Like, oh 100%, yeah. yes. Yes, that doesn't mean that's an exactly satisfying reading of either of those novels. Totally. No, I agree. Absolutely. And they, it's not, I mean, nor, I feel like it's not, it's not redemptive at all and it's not a generous reading, but nor is it like Wright and Hurston where I feel like, oh, this is just like the, the version of critical history where they're just like shitty to each other. Right. <laughs> yeah. At this point, I mean, I should say uh, context wise, so Melville writes Benito Torino in 1855. It comes out in three installments in Putnam's uh, Monthly Magazine, which is like a, an anti-slavery sort of northern liberal magazine. So anti-slavery fair would be part of it. He had written Moby Dick in 1851. 1852 is Uncle Tom's Cabin. He's not having a lot of success, you know? <laughs> and uh, the... And Uncle Tom's Cabin, as you know, just convulses the literary public. It's like the most popular novel in the 19th century. It's just hugely... And for a lot of reasons, he has to take to magazine fiction um, for a lot of complicated reasons, one of which is that it could help him reestablish an audience for his fiction. Anyway, that has always seemed to me striking. Like After the huge labor of imagination that was uh, Moby Dick, he looks around in the world and he sees not only... um, the the problem of slavery reaching the uh, crisis moment that it's about to a couple of years later, but also a reading public completely enchanted by Uncle Tom's Cabin and that mm-hmm. version of anti-slavery. And it seems to me that's part of what's standing behind the really vengeful energy of this yeah. story. Yeah. 
No, totally. Okay, so if it's cool, the rest of us, we're going to like give our versions of why we wanted to read Benito Serino. And of course, it's like usually a fifth rereading. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah. And it's like <laughs> yeah. boggling and you feel deeply like interpolated by this essay, this yeah. story. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to reread it just like, okay, so I should admit every time I read this, I feel like a total dumbass. And yeah. like, I'm the, I'm, I am the very bad reader. Like, I don't understand anything. I've missed the boat, which is not a boat, but a ship. <laughs> As Tristan will remind us. Um, Good, I also solid. Wanted, solid ship head burn. Um, <laughs> I wanted to read this for the like manyth time because it masters. So this is sorry to be like this guy, but it, I think it's structurally perfect in a way that's awe-inspiring even for Mm -hmm. melville who's so like structurally masterful um and of course i have to reference that beautiful and weird form that i keep bringing up and i think tristan and katie are like super tired of it Um, (laughs) (laughs) which is like okay whatever um all of us have our have our things um but I always think of the German novella when I read this. Um, Martin Swale says it contains the unheard of event, which is supposed to relate the turning point. Um, yes, that's Fendepunkt. I'm proud of it. Um, <laughs> my mediocre German. Dork. Yeah. Oh, really? We just read Rob Roy. It's awfully rich. <laughs> Me is a dork, sure. Six Germanist burn. Germanist burn. Yeah. Um, but I, and the well-defined symbol and the narrative frame that are characteristic of the plot structure, um, Goethe says that novellas are defined by what the writer, he, he, Goethe called a narration of a single striking or unique event. And I would suggest that Benito Serino contains something like, um, an unfathomable event instead of an unheard of event. Um, but Delano is unable to imagine it. And yeah. That is so important to the story. Like he just, he can't bring it to mind before it becomes obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and we never see this totally constitutive right. event. Yeah. It's, it is all, it is only ever, no, I mean, so many, it just makes me think of a lot of, like you think of Goethe, but it thinks, makes me think of a lot of like 20th century historiography. Chilo, who writes about the unthinkableness yeah. of hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like the, the, like it can happen and it can be written about, but it cannot be thought cannot be yeah. made in here right. in colonial thought. You could obviously think of Spivak too. This is a story that is trying to not speak for subalterns, but only show us a variety of patterns of action, all of which are under duress and coerced, yes. which is yeah, not the absolutely. same speaking. And I think that's totally right. Just a, a, a feat of just like astonishing formal intricacy in this small space. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's amazing. And so like Tristan always gets a little bit, you know, like um frustrated with my like closet formalist readings, but <laughs> <laughs> like we know her before. <laughs> we no, I, historicism only. I don't yeah. I know for, <laughs> formalism like, is <laughs> Meg's totally right. Like like if you can't it just another thing that that I mean, Meg, I'm just exactly like you. Like I can really remember like the first time I read the the story. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. You know, whenever I teach it, I always say like, "Who got it?" And like, yeah. someone Isn't will raise like their nobody? hand. Nobody. No, and then I I'm know. Just like, You're totally lying. 
No, yeah. to, oh, totally. No. And even, I mean, what, this really, uh, Megan and I taught this, uh, taught this uh, book in a, a, a class a couple of years ago on literature and citizenship, you know, really smart graduate students. And like, we warned them like, like some, some shit happens, you're not going to get it. And so they were all like, we're going to figure it out. And not a single one of them got it. They all showed up like with these blank yeah. expressions, like what the fuck just happened to no, me? Totally. And like a lot of undergraduates will say, no, I got that it was not what he thought it was. And I was like, well, he gets that too, man. That's yeah. different from yeah. saying that I understood immediately that what was yeah. happening was a slave revolt. Yeah. And he was in the midst of it. Like, And it seems to be like what the more I taught it, the more I got, speaking of, 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 the, of the formal properties of the story, like unless you can think hard about say omniscient narration and free and direct discourse and the blurred relation mm-hmm. between them you're you're not going to get what it is that makes the story so vengeful but also so difficult to read why it's spring loaded against you you know yeah. oh yeah no totally um yeah, and, and no, and I think this like why I like that like that really does get to why I love this and why I always want to reread it. I think this was like probably my fifth or sixth rereading of it, and like just getting mad at myself for being such an idiot the first time. Like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. dumbass. But and yeah, like, shamed. I really think I have to introduce that. Like, I feel deeply shamed. Yes, by this exactly, story. exactly. Um, and no, I mean, so there's other things, right? It's like I get to read Herman Melville, Stan. I get to look <laughs> on Libs, like Double Stan, like and like a Gothic horror at sea? No, that doesn't sound like anything I would be into at all. And, you know, like, and, and I, I just, I, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll keep this brief because this kind of reiterates what you guys have already said. But, um, you know, I do love that this is a story of bad reading um, and referring not just to the audience, which Pete, I'm sure you'll tell us more about, but but to characters within it. Like Amasa Delano is this pretty boilerplate, ant- uh, boilerplate antebellum northern liberal who, you yeah. know, in a few decades might even think of himself as an abolitionist. Um, yeah, he, yeah, thinks, yeah. he thinks he's in a sentimental novel. He's not. He's in a fucking gothic <laughs> horror. Um, but, but then, like Melville, and this is you know as eighteenth centuryist who you know thinks about Britain and and kind of uh, the, the other side of the Atlantic. You know, Melville is really as a lot. I know a lot of American uh, Americans at this time were um, revising what the gothic even means. Um, you know, yeah. the slaves in revolt. They're not weird, spooky Catholics in castles back right. in Europe. Um, yeah. They're very rational actors at war with a society that's enslaving them. Um, and, and there's just, I'm sorry, like, we'll talk about this. There's an extremely amazing seed where a shroud drops from this skeleton that has replaced Columbus as the ship's oh, figurehead. So and it's like, yeah, the entire new world post-colonization is fucking horror, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. The, the, the entire new world is shrouded in Gothic horror that keeps re-describing itself as sentimentality. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's um, the best. It's the best. Yeah. So, uh, Katie, I feel like I don't even have to ask anyone why they would want to read this other than to read it, but why did you want to reread it? (laughs) Well, it turns out from this conversation that we uh, have been having that I really like books that have uh, haircuts in them, but the haircut in Uncle Tom's Cabin um, of of little little Eva, uh, you know, uh, sentimentally giving away her blonde curls is a little different than this one, which we'll talk about. Um, but it's just like, just to reiterate, it's a totally magnet. It's just magnificent. I mean, it's a magnificent story. It's about everything. Uh, it's about, it's about manners. Um, it's about race. It's 
about uh, being so tense that uh, you can just barely unball your fist. Um, <laughs> it's all. It also has relatedly. It's got this like M Night Shyamalan level twist ending, which is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and if you if you want to get anybody interested in this, just pitch it as like it's Sweeney Todd at sea, but it's total suspense and there's no songs. <laughs> there you go. If you were pissed off at Sweeney Todd for the singing, then it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about this too. The kind of uh, the kind of bad reader that uh, D- Captain Delano is, and he's our sort of eyes and ears. Um, and it, he what's what's interesting about him is what he gets wrong about uh, what he's seeing, and so the way that I like to think of him is as a kind of like a kind of like a a, a guy who listens to a uh, or or watches a twelve episodes of a Netflix docu series and entitled uh, "The Dad Definitely Did It," where the entire <laughs> well where every episode is all about how the dad did it, and at the end he's like, "I have a hot take." Are we sure it was the dad? <laughs> uh, yeah, man. I'm, I'm going to, uh, you know, I teach this a lot. Like maybe every year I'm just folding that up and putting it in my back pocket. Like how many of you saw the dad did it? Do you guys see that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, this yeah. is like that. Oh. <laughs> so uh, today we're going to talk about the um, trick or twist or unreadability of this novella. We're going to talk about tyranny. We're going to talk about how this uh, novella rearranges your brain and fucks with you and the political and rhetorical and revolutionary questions that it raises. So Pete, tell us um, what happens. I said, but we've said spoiler warning, so go to town. All right, so we're going to spoil the story. All right, so it's a, it's a, it's kind of like a seafaring mystery. Uh, the scene dawns. We're told it's 1799. That is to say, it's at the edge of the age of revolutions, and we find ourselves like following a guy named Massa Delano, who's from Duxbury, Massachusetts. That is, he's a northerner, um, and he's in Chile, and he's in his boat, uh, and suddenly. In the morning, on the sort of uninhabited coast of southern Chile, where they've gone for water, they see a weird ship that isn't flying any flag. Mm-hmm. And we're told at the beginning of the story that, like, well, that's a bet. Like, those seas are known to be filled with pirates, and anyone would have been tremendously alarmed, but not Captain Delano, because he's a man of such undistrustful good nature that he thinks, <laughs> oh, they probably need my help. <laughs> so when he takes uh, uh, some like spoiled pumpkins and fish and goes over to this other ship, which is called the San Dominic. And on the San Dominic, uh, he climbs aboard and he meets a Spanish captain named Captain Delano. It's his ship. And he realizes that, oh, weird. This is a slave ship that's that, and everyone tells him immediately, oh, we've had such a hard time at sea. The scurvy killed so many of the officers, uh, it killed some of the slaves as well. And everyone is sort of uh, uh, gathered around him to tell him this tale of woe. And he's like, Wait, the oh, captain well. of the other ship is Benito Serino, right? Did I get that wrong? 
Did yeah, I call they, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah you Did just, I you just, I think you, you said, you said Delano. Yeah. No, yeah, but, man. I get it. Like this is, it's like, it's like they're in class with me. I just end up shifting them both around. The Spanish <laughs> yes. guy, yeah. the guy on the Spanish ship who is this cadaverous looking, nervous, fingernail biting, skinny, anxious, jumpy uh, guy is named Benito Serino. Right. And we follow Captain Delano, the American, as he walks around the ship over a couple hours. <laughs> and he sees all sorts of weird shit, and he thinks, well, that's very queer now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Spanish sailors who seem to be hiding expensive clothes under, like, dirty exterior clothes. He's wondering why all the, the enslaved people are roaming about on ships he knows that sometimes they do that. Eh, Captain Serino says, eh, not to worry about it. It's I, I trust all these enslaved people. And he sees uh, who he calls Ashanti warriors polishing hatchets mm. on, the, on the ship. He sees... Totally normal. Uh, <laughs> totally normal. Um, and he just thinks, oh, this is all very queer. And he decides it's probably because poor Benito Serino... He looks at and realizes, oh, he's so young to be a captain. He was clearly appointed here. He was never much of a sailor, doesn't have a lot of experience. He thinks, oh, he's a bad captain. And shipboard discipline is lax. That's why that enslaved child <laughs> had hit and cut the head of that Spanish child. That's why it seems so disordered on the yeah. ship. Oh, he's bad sure, management. Yeah, yeah sure. He's it's bad management. And what he realizes, what, what Delano thinks has made the management work at all, is Benito Serino's personal slave, Babo, who follows him around, has his arm around him, walks with him everywhere. <laughs> and Delano enjoys this sight tremendously. Ah, what a good man you have here, slave, I cannot call him. <laughs> uh, 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 and Babo just never, never lets coughing uh, hypochondriac Benito Serino <laughs> sight. Indeed, even when Delano wants to speak to Serino privately, he gets irritated because Benito Serino won't let him do so without Babo present. Right. And like Delano spends a lot of time being like, this is weird. Something <laughs> is not right here. And we watch yeah. him think about it. Like, what's happening? Why is that? Why did that Spanish sailor throw me a rope that was not? <laughs> quick I don't and he has these suspicions you know and like at one moment he's like man maybe maybe the sailors are trying to get to are trying to tell me that Benito Serino is only pretending to be sickly but he's really a tyrant and he's keeping <laughs> them down and Benito Serino has persuaded the slaves to be on his side but then he thinks to himself he thinks to himself, no, that would require all the slaves playing a, a, a masquerade part, and they're too stupid. Right. Besides, he thinks, who would be so renegade, thinking of, of, of Benito Serino, as to apostatize from their species almost by leaguing right. in with the black? So it's like, no, this, the captain cannot be in league. So I don't know yeah. what's happening. and I don't know what's happening. Yeah. I don't know what's happening. He watches Babo shave Benito Serino. He watches the slave Atufal go through a ritual of imprisonment. And he finally thinks what's going to happen to him is they're going to murder him. 
Mm. He's really convinced of it. (gasps) But then at this climactic moment, he's not. And he sees the sun and he realizes (laughs) that, oh, God has been looking out for him the whole time. God wants him to survive (laughs) because his conscience, he tells us, is clean. No one would kill a Delano, and God has a plan for all. He looks around, he sees the beautiful sunset, he sees his ship, he sees the chained slaves, and he thinks God has a perfect plan. I'm such a good-hearted person. Nothing bad would ever happen to me. Well, here's where the spoilers commence. As he's leaving, Benito Serino jumps into his boat, and he immediately thinks, this motherfucker is trying to get me killed. Yeah. <laughs> he jumped into my boat, and now all the Spanish are thinking I'm going to kidnap him. And he <laughs> steps on his neck, and he's gonna, he takes out his knife, and he's, gonna, he's like, this guy. And then Babo jumps in the boat, and he can't what? understand what's happening. It's at that moment when Babo takes out a knife to stab Benito Serino that he's, the scales fall from his eyes, as the story says, and he realizes that all the while, He's been on board a ship that the enslaved have taken over. And they've been forcing the Spaniards to perform the part of their authority. And they've been mocking, play-acting at being enslaved to entrap Delano. The next thing that happens is the ship is that Delano uh, gives chase to the San Dominic. And there's a kind of race war where the Spanish Mm -hmm. Americans fight the enslaved. They retake the ship. The story then cuts very strangely to a deposition where we read the deposition uh, that uh, is settling the matter of the ship. At no point do the slaves or Babo speak in the deposition. They are testified about. And then at the end of the story, we get a vignette of Captain Delano speaking to Amasa Delano on their ship uh, as, they're, as, they're, as they're going back um, to the mainland, to where the deposition will be taken. And that's the whole of the story. What's weird, there are several things to say about it. Uh, one of them is at the end of the story where, you know, Amasa Delano realizes what's happened, he's learned nothing. Right. <laughs> like, nope, nope. <laughs> he's, like, he's just like, well, that was weird, huh? Good thing we survived it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And Benito Serino tries and tries to impart something of what he thinks happened. Benito Serino, who is, of course, a man who now knows what it is to have been enslaved. And he speaks back to Delano. Delano doesn't hear him. The story ends with us seeing uh, Babo's decapitated head on a pike, staring across a plaza at the monastery where Benito Serino has gone and where eventually he dies. That's the end of the story. The story ends in a festival of death and silence. So that's my cheerful summary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right, and we get that wonderful last line that again is like stinging for me, where he says, "You know, uh, Benito Serino, born on the beer, did indeed follow his leader," which could actually mean like mm, four things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 right. No, totally. Um, yeah, yeah, and well, and also it like, and, and I don't like, uh, you know, I don't in, in any way mean this to, uh, you know. Uh, dunking on uh, Amasa Delano to let Benito Serino off the hook, who's a you know slaveholding asshole. But like the whole story, Delano is convinced that either the dumbass or the incompetent is Serino, while the whole time it's hit. You know what I mean? Like it's, so, um, yeah. But well, it's coming from inside the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and we can say like it's worth saying, especially when teaching, right? 
for like a hundred years, the story was read as a parable about American innocence. Like a massive Delano is so good hearted, so right. charitable, so kind, so decent a man, so truly Christian that he could not possibly have uh, 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 begun to comprehend the devious machinations of the enslaved. So in that reading, which is again, a canonical reading for like a hundred years, old world treachery figured by uh, the Spanish captain, uh, Benito Serino is outdone by the slaves devilish treachery, all of which is incomprehensible to the good hearted American. And that's like how it was read. Yeah. yeah, no, it's amazing. Um, Which is kind of amazing. Only in the last whatever fifty, sixty years, people are like, "No, dude, this is a story yeah. about how <laughs> this white guy, this like pious white northerner, spends a day looking directly at a scene of terror and enslavement, mm-hmm. and keeps mm-hmm. redescribing it as like fraternity, perhaps mild disorder, good hearted. Right. You know? Like it's a story about." like the the literally blinding power of his cheery white supremacist. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Again, that it's like something like unthinkable or um, that it, that it hasn't been seen means it can't be right. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. He cannot Um, like, like Babo has to be literally about to stab Benito Serino. Yeah. Like, Oh yeah. Oh Yeah. yeah. That must be a slave revolt. No, none of I, these, uh, n- nothing else could make that clear to him. Uh, so thick, so just fully encrusted is his thought with the premises of just pious Christian white supremacy. We know that it's an attack on this utterly basal Delano, but like Pete, you suggest that, I mean, it, it's the only way to read it is that it's an attack on the reader. I mean, that's, I, it seems to me that's a lot of what's at stake in the story. And I mean that a couple ways. You'll remember like at the beginning of the story, when we're just, when we don't know, we don't know what the fuck is happening. We just walked into this story and the narrative voice tells us that uh, the, the sentence is Captain Delano's surprise at seeing this ship might have deepened into some uneasiness had he not been a person of singularly undistrustful good nature. So right. like not yeah. a trusting yeah. man. Yeah. It's a person yeah. who enjoys canceling his distrust. Undistrustful good nature, not liable to indulge in personal alarms anyway impu- involving the imputation of malign evil in man. You're like, oh, okay, he doesn't believe the world is evil. But then the next sentence is astonishing. It says, whether in view of what humanity is capable, such a trait implies along with a benevolent heart more than ordinary quickness and accuracy of intellectual perception (laughs) may be left to the wise to determine. So like this omniscient narrator has sort of told you like that guy is a fucking idiot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, definitely with me. Like, I mean, one of the effects of that is I'm the omniscient narrator. I've spoken behind this guy's back with you. Right. A little compact you and me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We've made a little deal 
that I'll talk shit about that guy and you will have the pleasure of knowing yourself in league with this omniscient power. Yes. You know? Oh yeah. It's, it it is remarkable the way that, the way the narration just like draws you in and thinks that you're, you're going along with it until that moment. It's like, Nope. (laughs) But, and and, and like to the question of like, so how, and how that becomes like, as you, as you've sort of described Pete, a, um, uh, like, you know, a, a tag, a really kind of severe critique of the audience, um, which is, and, and not just, uh, it, uh, Megan and I have had this conversation a lot, not just the 1855, like, liberalish northern white audience, but I mean, like, one thing that, like, always pisses me off about myself when I reread this, right, is it's like, I'm a, I'm not a liberal, I'm a fucking leftist. I, you know, <laughs> I take, anti, I like, anti-racism very much part of that. And yet, like, the, and the whole time I get that Del- and I was like an, an idiot and that, you know, that his his kind of like liberal faith in in just like you know goodness uh, is 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 kind of blinding him to shit and yet it's like i'm so into the like i can only read the enslaved here as like uh, victims i guess that you know that i like yeah. I, it, it never yeah. occurs to me that what happening in this space of you know that this 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 the space of suspension uh like away from like all these kind of existing power structures that hey maybe they're in fucking revolt it the first time i read this it never fucking occurred to me until i yeah. saw you know that that baba was about to to uh, you know kill Serino um, and I am still it's been a decade I'm still mad at myself about I mean, that, yeah. you know? what I would say about that is that the story explicitly does not want you to like right. the story then so the narrative trick as we were saying is to vanish entirely the omniscient perspective so yeah. that whatever we get after that initial moment is really just a burlesque of Delano's mm-hmm. perspective. And the omniscient narrator is betting that, well, so great is your faith in this omniscience that you'll just let anything go past. So there's all these like moments where like unbelievably racist presumptions are made. Like there is something about the Negro which uniquely fits him for avocations about one's person with that peculiar love of uniting pastime and industry seen in like these moments that later you can see, oh, that's Delano's dipshit white supremacism. <laughs> yeah. They're offered mm-hmm. as just pieces of narration. Just like unmark that that sounds like indeed some of them are marked as omniscient narration. Yeah. And I can right. like vividly remember I was telling you guys like I first read it when I was an undergraduate. I remember sitting in the fucking like grass at Northwestern in like the early 90s reading this being like but wait I read Moby Dick. I didn't. I thought Melville was like an anti-racist. Why is right. he? Right. Yeah, and really not being able to unravel that, even when the story was over, like not being like I still don't. Why would he say all that weird shit about uniting industry and pastime and the unaspiring contentment of a limited mind and all that sort of stuff? You know, and it seems to me that like that sort of um, uh, uh, masquerade plotting is the narrative's identification with Babo. You know what I mean? Who's oh, described yeah. as the plotter, as the person who orchestrates masquerades, who, who, who wants things not to be read clearly. That's, I always yeah. think, like, how the story identifies itself with a character it will nevertheless not presume to speak for. That's really, that's really helpful to, I mean, because no matter how many times I read this also, it's like, oh, I can't, still can't quite get, figure everything out. That that moment that always gets me that I think is related to what you're saying is that the, one of the last things that the narrator says 
in the beginning before he starts really talking about Delano is um, like this funny line, which is shadows present foreshadowing yeah. deeper shadows to come, which is just like, <laughs> it's, so it's just like, so it's so Melville and it is such a, it's a little it's a zinger when you when you uh read it again from the beginning because it's like okay so you're set up to know something uh something funny is going on here and but then you of course get like shoved back into the perspective of uh this captain who like doesn't quite understand what what's happening or what's going on and can't see um but that but that moment of like all of the sh- like the shadows like these things that you you sort of can orchestrate and control but kind of n- maybe not in the way that you that you ever think especially like on a boat that's in motion yeah um, yeah right yeah <laughs> excellent like the like the i like the especially what you're saying about like being confined in this claustrophobic way to Delano's perspective. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. Like that, that as you, you read the story more and more times, it feels more claustrophobic, not just because he's trapped on a ship and he's about to be murdered, though there is that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just is unyielding. Just as Tristram says, like, like it cannot imagine like, like, like the enslaved people as revolutionaries, the enslaved people as, um, um, agents of their own uh, liberation, you know? Like there's that no. amazing where he sees the um, the woman with her child. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yes, yes. And I he, actually, yeah. <laughs> kisses, snatches up the child, covers it with kisses, and he keeps like, as with so many of us, he keeps like just shrouding her in animal figures. She's like leopardesses, she's like doves, et cetera, et cetera. And I always ask my students like, what do you think now that you've read the story she's saying wordlessly when she snatches up the child and kisses him. And the best answers are the kids who are like, Oh, I think she's saying mine, mm. not yours. And then yeah. the best answer is, like, Oh, I think she's saying it's going to be a pleasure to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Me too. It's a good yeah. answer. And what, of course, what Delano thinks is there's naked nature now, pure tenderness and love. Right. Um, yeah. As he's looking at, the woman whose child will be taken from her at whatever port they go to. Yeah. Um, And that reminds me of the, like, it's not similar, but it is part of that same part, which is that when he first sees Atufal in chains and he's like, look at this giant man, like this giant beast of a man who, you know, must be like a a mute. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, never for a minute could you think that this is like, profoundly powerful person who's like he's he's babo's second right yeah 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 right they yeah. are the people who, consp- who who arrange everything i mean that's part of it like the ingeniousness of the of the deposition as the second part of the story is it reconstructs in its deflating language the fact that this is entirely a plot orchestrated instigated and sustained by babo and the enslaved like that's you know, you know, and it has totally. to be mirrored in that uh, archival language. No, totally. And and I like the. Um, I guess the first time I I read the uh, the this, I, I I think I was still so mad at myself for not getting it that I was a little <laughs> bit like, what the hell is this legal deposition language doing here? This is like one. It's just yeah. boring. It's like I already kind of get what happened. You could narrate it a different way. But what I love about it, and I think it is, it's like, okay, so this like, like, you know, from the perspective of the kind of like white supremacist empire, this unaccountable, like, 
like event, which would be read to them as horror, right? Like that the, the enslaved yeah. are going to overthrow us is so unimaginable. It's going to, tr- the legal structure is going to come back and try to reimpose like order over it. And it can't, um, you know, like, it, yeah. and that's why, like once we finish with the deposition, we, we are back in kind of like a, a sort of more kind of straightener or like back in the narrative, the original narrative voice. And we mm-hmm. get that moment where we, we uh, basically Sereno is, is wasting away in, in Delano's cabin. And, and, uh, you know, you are saved, cried Captain Delano, more and more astonished and pain because basically, like, why cheer up, man, right? And he's like, you are, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I saved you. The good, good, good American saved you. Um, you know, uh, you are saved. What has cast such a shadow upon you? The Negro is, is, is Serena's answer. And I think like, that's, I don't think that's just Babo. I, I, I think oh, that yeah, that is yeah. like, that is like, I mean, his entire like perception of like his position of like unquestioned power, the the white supremacist yeah. state, what have you, like it, like a a serious blow has been dealt to that in a way that like, and I think we see like it had that being juxtaposed with this legal language, like the the legal state oh, trying great. to come back yeah. and reimpose order, it doesn't it doesn't work. You know what I mean? Um, or it doesn't work in a satisfying way. Yeah. Or it only has to work by repressing. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about. Benito Serena, and I'm always interested to see the different ways students read him. Like, you can read him as um, repentant, you know, like, don't right. chase Babo, don't go after him, please leave them alone, I don't want to see him, I can't look at him. And you could read that as a man who is repenting of having enslaved someone else, now knowing existentially what it is to be enslaved. You can read it as just terror, mm. as just right. like un- terror. Tristan, you can read it just as you said, like, a man whose entire cognitive grounding yeah. was the unthinkability of uh, a black uprising, a, yeah. a, a, a black intelligence equivalent to an overmastering of his own. He could be unstrung in that respect, and it just the the the, <laughs> the narrative folds them all into his like, well, whatever it is, he can't live anymore. Like, yeah. No, totally. And, and I, and I do just want to stress, like, I, I'm not, I, you know, I, I'm not at all trying to minimize like the violence of the repression that comes back, but it is like that, oh, yeah. co- like what you just said, the, his cognitive, like account of his world, like no longer holds after this event, which he could not imagine, nor could Delano. Yeah. And Del- and I mean, a lot to say about the, and one of them is that Delano's, uh, like cognitive maps of the world, which are again, basically charitably liberal Christian. Mm. Are absolutely unchanged, right? They're yeah. absolutely un. He 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 is like not enlightened in any way at all. His own stupidity teaches him nothing. Yeah, uh, and I think Serino suggests why when he says, "So far may any man err in entering into the uh, mind of a person the recesses of whose consciousness he is unacquainted with," like. Delano still just has fantasies mm-hmm. of what it's like to be enslaved. And those right. fantasies are, are cross between um, cheerful docility, a friendly accompaniment, uh, an unaspiring contentment given to a God-ordered lesserness. Like, all that stuff is still intact for him. He's yeah. still able to hold on to it, having won this small race war. Right. Not so for Benito Serino. Like no. just that—that's obliterated. And he's, you watch him try to impart something of it to the mm-hmm. to the obdurate Delano. Yeah. So, Katie, is this like we? Ha- now I have to get your take on the sort of like for like formal or generic problem of the Gothic that visits this. 
I think it's very much, um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know who coined this term, but it's like, it's almost like the, the Calvinist sublime thing where it's oh, like, nice. the, the idea of who, who is, who is chosen and who is not chosen to be uh, a slave or not a slave or, or in any position or, or, or not, um, is, is visible to Benito Serino, but it's not visible to, uh, to Delano, even at the even at the end, oh, yeah. and so I I think like the Christianity of this and the gothicness of it are tied together, uh, like in a way that I can't un, I can't unintent I can't get apart, mm. um, because in in so in both cases we have like this performative submission that frees you, um, w- where with uh with Benito Serino, he sort of has to like, he has to wait till the last minute to jump in the ship and not give any indication he's going to do it. And, um, you know, you, we think that the slave rebellion is going to be, um, successful because they're able to play these parts so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the end, in fact, everything is, is ruined and it's all, it's, it all becomes sort of, uh, lost to hopelessness. And so this idea about this, this fantasy about, um, like happiness in slavery that, that we keep getting treated to this, like kind of delusion that was not just like in this book, but also there were laws in lots of States where you could voluntarily become a slave because, you know, people thought that was like a thing that someone, one might like to do. Um, so that's, so, so that to me is like the, I, I know this is a, maybe a funny way of getting at your question, Meg, but I think like that's the Gothic part is like the impossibility of ever controlling or knowing anything and being able to trust your senses in any meaningful way. Even as you turn your eyes like into yourself, you, there's, there's something that you won't, you'll never be able to understand there. And we get that from from every perspective that we get, we get that un, unknown kernel of something. Right. That, that every consciousness is like under, every consciousness undergirds this whole thing. And yet we only get the stupidest one. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like everybody here has like, I think is intended to sort of be read as having like a rich conscious. Like I think of Bamo is having like a lot of depth that we never get access to. Yeah, that's one of the, I mean, you were talking about the formal tricks of the book. One of them is that Babo stands as a, as a, 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 a gentle character. The hive of subtlety is what they're called his mind. Yeah. Um, but again, the recesses of whose character Melville declines to narrate just to suggest, um, um, suggesting again, a kind of narrative tact and modesty uh, around depictions of the like inner life of being enslaved. Like I always think of, um, you know, Moby Dick has this figure in Moby Dick called named Pip, who mm-hmm. some people will remember, like he falls out of the boat, you know, he's the, he's the, the, in certain ways, figure of the fugitive slave on, on the board of Moby Dick and he falls off the side of the boat and he loses his mind. He just, he, he, whatever, whatever happens to him isolated in the sea while he's by himself undoes him. Mm, I've always thought of him as like Melville's great figure for the untellable, unnarratable, unsignifiable story at the heart of of the global empire, which is. So he's everything that Eliza isn't. Is this me being like just a total dope? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it seems to me like there's different, a different way to ask that question is like, there's different versions of tyranny, right? Like in this story, 
as we've said, dipshit liberal. <laughs> no, is the tyrant. Like he's the person yeah. who is going to finally re-enslave everybody with his cheerful good heart and his belief in the God-ordered cosmos that has him at the top of it and slaves at the bottom of it. Whereas for Stowe, there's tyrants in Stowe, you know? Mm-hmm. But you got to go down south to find them. Oh, and yeah. they're Legree, right? And they look super, like, like Legree isn't Delano. Legree is this monstrous, deep, deep south, uh, anti you know what I mean? Yeah. That's like what tyranny looks like in Uncle Tom's cabin. As like turned away from God, et cetera, et cetera. And what I again love about, about this novella is like, no, 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 no. The tyrant in this story has not turned away from God in the least. The tyrant in this story thinks he's God's chosen man. Yeah. You know? Like he fully he, embraces the fact of God's having chosen him. Yeah. Katie, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, there's so it all I can think about is like see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Yeah. There's no like do no evil in that, you yeah. know? There's no the, I think brutal. that I, I think that's who this guy you know, I think that's who this person is. Like I think that's who he is. And I think that's his theology, like if we can call it that. I mean, I think when I th- so I've been thinking a lot more about his theology and just as an amazing figure um for what you could just call like, like there's a writer named Jared Hickman who I like a lot who thinks of um, like empire after 1492 as a theoplanetary domination mm. whereby white people become so identified with God itself <laughs> as to understand themselves as possessing the power to deliver life and death, redemption, damnation. Right, at yeah. At yeah. their women, that's, that that's just entirely Delano's sense of himself. Like he says, well, of course I'm not going to be killed. My conscience is clean. Right. Says a man who's like up to his throat in enabling slave traders. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and what a deeply Protestant thing to think at that moment is that my, my conscience is clean so I can't die. Yeah. Like that's the opposite of the Catholic thing of like, okay, my conscience is clean. Like I can go now. Yeah. And also right. the opposite of really like a Calvinist thing. Like, again, you could, uh, you don't lose points for thinking of Melville as like the last clinging Calvinist, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. the liberalization of Protestantism around him is kind of a horror to him. Because yeah. it permits precisely the sense that, oh, God looked at me and liked me. Mm-hmm. Rather than God is some radically other incomprehensibly distant thing that will that has no relation to me as such, to my meanness, you know? Um, and then gets that all over Benito Serino. He's like, you lived. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, the the other thing really worth thinking about about that that astonishing ending is the grimness of its pro- I mean, this is before the Civil War. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. You know, as you, as you say, um, Delano's like, dude, you didn't die. It's great. Everything's <laughs> great. Why do you keep thinking about what happened? Look at the trade winds. Look yeah. at the sea. Look at the sun. They've already forgotten it. Yeah. And, and Benito Serino says uh, 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 pregnantly, because they have no memory, because they are not human. And that seems to me this very terrifying way of Melville 
if like if you think of Benito Serino as a man who's been enslaved, mm-hmm. that seems to be his way of saying, "Listen, American reading public, if you imagine that the ranks of the enslaved will simply forget what you've done to them, will simply." pass along as though that was a thing that happened once and we can now carry on with our lives, you would have to believe, A, they have no memory, B, they are not human. Those are the things you have to tell yourself to think that the world could continue. Right. I mean, he's not exactly right about that, right? Like like a, a piecemeal fucked republic does come back together. Yeah. And you have to believe that... Benito Serino thinks, or I'm sorry, Delano thinks there's a nice version of owning people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, they're like one. Yeah. Like, so <laughs> one of, one of like the, the epic dipshit sequences in this is when he cut like, yeah, it's after the, it's after the, the shaving scene when he, uh, Delano is like, oh, this is yeah. getting a little weird. I got to walk out <laughs> on the deck. Yeah. And like, Babo comes running out like with a cut on his face, which we later gather he, you know, did, did himself. Did yeah. himself. Sure. But and he's like, oh, you know, like the 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 Delano or uh, I'm sorry, Serino uh, cut cut me because you know I I cut him by accident. And uh, and Delano's like, what? Like what a horrible thing that slavery uh, yields. Yeah. But then but then he's like, oh no, this is just a lovers quarrel. See, it's not like like the the one the one moment where because like if if what Delano originally thought was right was that like you know Serino had cut him because like for this for this like honest mistake like that's extremely fucked up but he's just very like and he's like wait maybe slavery's a problem oh no it's just like they just had a spat it's fine you know after all yeah what does he what does he say something like oh this slavery breeds ugly passions and men yes yes no no they're just really it's a a a a spectacle of friendship of intimacy of close devotion Um, totally i mean the thing that i've been i don't one thing I've been thinking about a lot recently when I think about, you know, Delano's has absolute faith in an entirely racialized omniscience. That is, God has a racialized world. Right. He yep. made the sky, he made the sea, he also made the blacks in chains. This is how we know he loves us and he loves his creation. Right. And there's something about that too, it seems to me, at stake in the story's solicitation of our own credulity. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like it asks us to believe in the power of this omniscience. It invites us to do so, which doesn't make Delano right, but it makes our eagerness to be like, what a fucking dipshit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, hollow because the story has just staged us doing exactly the same thing. Like believing in a power above one that we can see that has our own best interests at heart. Yeah. No, totally. Yes. And, uh, Pete, can I, can I ask just uh, one dork question here? <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, and, no, I, and here, here it is. Why do you have a sense of why this is set in 1799 oh, and yeah, not yeah. in the present day? Um, totally. And because, and I ask that because, like, I think that that those kind of like periods of American history do get to like a narrative around kind of slavery and white supremacy yeah. that, that that Melville is is constructing. I mean, it seems to me the simplest answer is that. So this is an actual thing that happened, as you guys know. That this mm-hmm. is a Melville takes yeah. an actual case from the 19th century and backdates it to 1799. I think the reason he wants to do so is to situate it firmly and absolutely in the age of revolution. That's just mm-hmm. 
seems to be yeah. clearly what he wants to do. So that when Babo says, um, when <laughs> when Benito Serino is sort of coughingly, stumblingly praising him, but yeah. Babo, I must say, has really saved the crew. And he says, uh, Babo is nothing. What Babo has done was but duty. I just think right. like a, a, a reader with their ears pricked up hears Jefferson, you know? Right. Like the Declaration of Independence says it is their right, it is their duty to do yeah. what? Well, to commit acts of violence against uh, oppressive governments. Like he just takes his place among the 18th century's revolutionaries, which is, yeah. I, I think, the unthinkable part of, of Haiti, of, of, of Santo Domingo. Yeah. Yeah, right. No, I mean, that's the thing, right? The, 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 the you know, that, uh, that, uh, Louverture and the, the Haitian revolution are also happening right now. That, that yeah. great event that, you know, that, white people have kind of written out of the history of the Western yeah. hemisphere, but like, but no, yeah, like the age of revolution, that makes a lot of sense to me. Also like, so like in 1855, the idea that all of this is leading, like, well, one, all of this is unspeakable violence and it is leading to yet more unspeakable violence. I think in 1855, it's kind of hard to ignore that. Whereas like in 1799, we're still in that, like, you know, asshole Jeffersonian faith of like, look at the great American Republic we've built. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) there's just, there's like an optimism, which, you know, the the story really problematizes that like seems maybe possible there that like in the middle of the 1850s feels a little bit distant to readers. I don't know. Yeah. No, I don't. That's interesting. That's right. I mean, certainly the, the, the weird temporal folding here is like Delano's Christianity is so shockingly un-Calvinist for 1799. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, But I, I think, as we've said, I think what's at stake in that is producing uh, for the story a kind of terrifying villain who's not mean, who's mm-hmm. not angry, who's not bellicose, but who is charitable and kindly and humane and certainly cannot understand himself in any other terms other than those of goodness, other right. than those yeah. beneficence. And I think that's I, I I think in that way, Massa Delano takes his place among the other kind of villains in mm-hmm. Elville who don't immediately seem villainous, like the lawyer in Bartleby, mm-hmm. who's like a, a, an employer, but he likes to think of himself as a good-hearted capitalist, right? Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. or Captain Veer who thinks of himself as starry, but unable to manage his own attractions to Billy Budd is like, we have to fucking kill him, you know? Yeah. Right. Like yeah. these aspects of the security state, basically. Yeah. Um, We're not going to take this back, right? They, they could have theoretically taken the Billy Budd case back to, you know. Yeah, of course. Like a, yeah. Of but course. he's like, no, you just got to kill him. Yeah. Like that's counter Ahab. Like there's a vision. Yeah. Like there's, oh, yeah. there's, there's really fomented, of course, in the Cold War uh, 20th century, a vision of Melville's ideal of tyranny being Ahab. Yeah. And you get that, but I don't think that's right. I think he's thinking yeah. hard about what tyranny looks like, and it doesn't typically look like Ahab. As no. they get the Civil War, it looks like blithe, good-hearted, charitable-minded <laughs> liberals. Totally. Yeah, he literally says yes. men of a good, blithe heart in Captain yeah. Del- Delano, which, like, Katie, go ahead. But I have to, uh, I have to, at some point, um, direct us to the the shaving scene. We just, we have to 
talk about it. But Katie, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that, well, what this is uh, the thing about the the two sort of the categories we have here of like this this villain who like kids. This is why you shouldn't have self esteem. It's bad for you. <laughs> um, so this category, but then and like what oh, yeah, Ahab is a monomaniac. Oh, sorry. What was that? That's good pedagogy. Uh, but there's a huge difference between a, mo- a monomaniac sees sees one thing and these other kinds of uh, villains wind up being these very nice villains because they think they see everything. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. And they, 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 they commit the error that Captain uh, Serino wants to point out to Captain Delano at the end, like, so far may any man err. In entering right. into the recesses of, uh, entering into the consciousness of a person who the recesses of whose mind he's unfamiliar with, you know. Yeah, and that, in certain ways, is the. I mean, I imagine you guys are sharper about sentimentality as such than I am, but like when Serino says, "Like you cannot know what someone else is suffering." Mm-hmm. Yeah, slap in the face of the first principle of sentimental attachment. Like as I suffer, so do you. My yeah, uh, yeah. To you, that sort of fantasy of experiential equivalence. Yeah. No, to, well, and also like the, the so the <laughs> like the critique of sentimentality. And again, you know, we're thinking of like uh, you know a hundred years, well, almost a hundred years later, Richard Wright as well, right? It's like it is a, it is like a devastating critique of it. I also is like an eighteenth centuryist. Like I mean, the, and you know, Katie, I mean, you you could talk a lot about this. Like the sentimental novel did accomplish a lot of you know really important political things, but I also think there's a way in which the logic of it do. do can default to this, like, I feel bad for these people. I'm such a good liberal. Okay, I'm going to go take a nap now. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, like, that it just, like, it, 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 it's, um, it, like, feeling as, like, driving political action is one thing, but also feeling as, like, oh, did you have a good cry and now you think you're done? Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and I do think that, like, that, in part, I mean, I, I know that was what, you know, in part, like, when Wright has that devastating thing of, like, I, you know, basically, I didn't want to write another book that, like, even bankers' daughters could cry over yeah. then. I think that was the end of the day. I, I think that like Melville too, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, at, at an earlier moment is, um, you know, that he's saying something very much to that idea. Um, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, there's a, a, a couple things to, to, to say on that front. Like the first point is like, absolutely right. If, if it's crudely so that like the sentimental novel encodes bourgeois liberal individualism as a, a sort of narrative disposition, well, like, you know, bourgeois individualism does a lot of shit. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Marx is certainly right about that. Um, (laughs) But the the for Melville, like the 1850s, is a moment when um, a new sphere of consumption is being created, called like a literary public sphere, Mm -hmm. and that's as against, like self consciously as against the sorts of not sufficiently secular eschatological terrorizing religious languages that someone like say John Brown would exemplify. Mm-hmm. You know? So as, so when abolitionists are making themselves known as against John Brown, they're creating like a public sphere that will be known for its strong feeling. Yes, but it's regulated feeling. Right. Yeah. And it'll be a zone that will uh-huh. disown eschatological violence. Yeah. And produce in its stead something like, uh, uh, um, what we might just call critique. Yeah. You know? and, and Melville is there 
watching literature itself get shrunken into the space of critique yeah. and separated out from the possibilities of violence, et cetera, et cetera, and, that one might think of as. And there's not anything, he's sort of trapped in that. I think Ann Douglas yeah. a million years ago was just crazy fucking right about that. Yeah, totally. And, and, yeah. and God damn it, it's the, it's the literary equivalent of the same fucking shit King is talking about in Letter from Birmingham to Jail. Yeah. It's the same shit like liberals have always done. It's like, we want a better world, but just hey, take it easy. Yeah, I mean, my mother always told me to dream medium. (laughs) (laughs) Better things are maybe kind of possible, I guess, right? (laughs) That moment happening, when that falsification of a public sphere, the purpose of which is strong feeling, uh, uh, rational counterpositioning, and critique, Mm -hmm. being positioned over and against and radically opposed to uh, things like violence, things like militancy, uh, you know, and that's it's only one of the places it plays out. Of course, Douglas is another. It is not the light that's needed, but the fire, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems to me that's part of what energizes this story's um, just like crazed anger at the fact of readership at all. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the fact that, as you guys pointed out, like there's only terrible readers. So, Pete, will you like summarize? I don't know. Somebody give us the summary of this amazing yeah. scene because I just like, you know, there's there's just so many tiny de- like. I guess the Spanish flag is not a detail because it's such a like ra- like bright angry symbol. Um, uh, oh, I mean the 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 first thing that I would say is just the um, like this the Spanish flag aside, just the performed restrained violence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the fact that this is one account of what slavery is. And instead of the lash, it's the knife at the throat. Mm-hmm. Like just the, like, like, like a way of, of um, uh, telescoping that the fundamental fact of enslavement, whatever else can be said of it, is an unceasing mortal violence. And right. That like the the clarity of that scene is, I just think, majestic. Like like okay, if you get students to get that uh, Benito Serino is a figure of the enslaved. What happens to him here? He's reminded of the circumstance that he is always in. Yeah, and it's another always, scene that I think always, always. when you read it the first time that you are if you are not getting like uh, some kind of atmospheric tension then you're yet again reminded later like god i can't believe i would be such a dummy yeah yeah and actually can i can i read just a couple paragraphs from Please. that because it's like the, the way it builds tension and that is the one thing like right like as a first time reader it's like oh man something's happening here i don't know what the fuck it is but something's <laughs> happening here right like uh so yes yeah, so, uh uh the, the preliminaries being somewhat novel to Captain Delano, he sat curiously eyeing them so that no conversation took place, nor for the present did Don Benito appear disposed to renew any. Setting down his basin, the Negro searched among the razors as for the sharpest, and having found it, gave it an additional edge by expertly strapping it on the firm, smooth, oily skin of his open palm. He then made a gesture as if to begin, but midway he stood suspended for an instant, one hand elevating the razor, the other professionally dabbing among the bubbling suds on the uh, Spaniard's lank neck. 
Not unaffected by the close sight of the gleaming steel, Don Benito nervously shuddered. His usual uh, ghastliness was heightened by the lather, which lather again was intensified at its hue by the contrasting sootiness of the Negro's body. Altogether, the scene was somewhat peculiar, at least to Captain Delano. <laughs> Nor, as he saw the two thus postured, could he resist the, uh, the vagary that in the black he saw a headsman and in the white a man at the block. You think? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, although I didn't, as the first time right. reader, right? But this uh, was one of those antic conceits, a period of vanishing in a breath from which perhaps the best regulated mind is not always free. Uh, meantime, the edge agitation of the Spaniard had a little loosened the bunning from around him so that one broad fold swept away curtain like over the chair arm to the floor revealing amid a profusion of armorial bars and ground colors black blue and yellow a closed castle in a blood red field diagonal with a lion rampant in a white the castle the lion exclaimed Captain Delano <laughs> why Don Benito this is the flag of Spain you use here it's well it's only I and not the king that sees this he added with a smile but turning toward the, the black it's all one, I suppose, so the colors be gay, which playful remark did not fail somewhat to tickle the Negro. <laughs> and again, only one thing to say about that. There's a, when I teach this all the time, when I teach Uncle Tom's Cabin, there's a moment when Tom gets out of uh, the wagon at Legree's plantation, or excuse me, at um, the, the, uh, the other guy, the, the uh, Eva's, little Eva's father, St. Clair's. Oh, yeah. When he gets to St. Clair's plantation, and the narrative just pauses and says, it must be remembered. The Negro uh, is an exquisite of the most gorgeous kind and is enraptured by color and beauty. Like, like that line all but, it's as though he's just got, it's as though he's reading from Uncle Tom's cabin. Yeah. Yeah. To yeah. Abbo, who's got a knife in his hand and is about to cut off the head of his <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. On the European flag, right? Like over... Yeah. The most, it's it's just, again, this is the thing, this is a moment that makes me feel like, how can I miss, how could I have missed this so completely, except as like, in in my sort of like proxy version of Delano, where I'm just like, this seems weird. Well, again, I mean, I think like, like apart from self-punishment, I think the story will, really is intended for it to, to not be read. Like, yeah. I, yeah. I think the... the 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 like that seems to me to underscore what you were saying at the beginning was by the the like the unthinkability of its events and it's going to bet that just with the slightest prodding this will all be illegible as anything other than mm -hmm. weird right well and 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 Katie, I I, also, I think that you, uh, when we were talking earlier, had raised a good point about like why it's important that this is shaving, right? That it, and uh, as you can imagine, other activities where you know yeah. an enslaved person has like a knife, but it, but there's something about that this is shaving, which um it, it go, well it goes to like the intimacy of it, but there's but I mean there's more to it, right? Oh, I mean, I think it's just like, yeah, to, to think that you have such total mastery over a person that you can say, I force you to take this uh, razor in your hand and put it next to my neck. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I know that my control over you is so complete that you won't do the logical thing. Like, yeah. you won't even succumb to the, of the perverse thing and like – and Sweeney Todd me, yeah. you know, I, I think, I think that, I think that's, that's what it, and it's like, it's just like, it's perfect that it, the, the perfection of the shaving scene is that like, he doesn't, who is he shaving for? 
Like, yeah, you're on a fucking boat. Like, who, who, and and he's like yellow and looks like shit, you know, like, <laughs> but we have to make sure he has a clean shave. And that's the really interesting thing is like, is, is, is Babo ultimately undone because he plays the part too well? Like he could have shoved him into a, into a sick room and, and had, uh, and had, uh, Delano, um, like sort of come and see the the ill captain or something. We could imagine this performance playing out a bunch of different ways, but like he has to sort of do like he has to uh, make it clear that ordinary appearances are being kept up, and like that's the theatricality of it, and like that's the undoing in a weird way, maybe. And that's the amazing. That's just a, such a good description of this. Like he stages for Delano a kind of absolute mastery. Mm-hmm. As offhand mm-hmm. mastery, even as that mastery is like entirely undone, you know, it, it repeats the Atufal stuff, who who refuses to to submit, et cetera, et cetera. But like the 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 idea that the only way that this person will be utterly convinced is by this performance of uh, just as you just perfectly described. Such is my mastery that here's this nice knife, shave me instead of cutting my throat. And every time he uses master, he's playing, right? So it's yeah. like the scene with Atufal is that Babo says like, he will submit to master yet. Yeah. Right? right. Because he's yeah. always like doing this weird uh, second person thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's and, both and- doing the proxy thing. And he's also like, you know, if we take a step back, we realize later like, oh no, he's doing a... I don't know what kind of position to put him in, but he's he's the narrator of this. He's the narrator of the unthinkable event, to which we have no access. Yeah, we only have access to like a series of we're assured by the sailors who assure the uh, the whoever is taking the deposition that they plotted all and they did so mm-hmm. in. And we're also told that um, two characters did whatever they did to Aranda's skeleton. Right, <laughs> and they told Benito Serino, but he will never tell it to them. Do you remember that little? It's just a little, little thing. Like they told Benito Serino how they got the flesh off of his bones and made that yeah. skeleton. Yes, yeah, and yeah. He knows, but he is not capable of narrating it, and will not ever narrate it to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like again, I think that goes to what Tristan was saying about the like the sh- the, the the sort of shattering of mm-hmm. of what what. Uh, like cognition was for him, you know. And yeah. We should probably yeah. talk about that. Like the when I first started to get better at the story, I think like the thing that got me most was the end in this particular set of sentences, which I do think are just among the most uh, overpowering, coiled, furious sentences <laughs> in all American literature. You know, <laughs> so you should probably read those. It's again at the end yeah. when they're um, when they're talking. And we're told, yeah. like, for a lot of the ship, for a lot of the trip, or rather, Benio Serena was too sick to talk. He just was mm-hmm. too... But there was a brief window where he could talk to Delano. And what we see him doing is, like, trying to impart something to him, to the obdurately stupid Delano, who just will not take it in. Mm-hmm. And so they're having this conversation. I want to read this part because these sentences are so just insanely strong. Yeah. Um, yep. It's when, after Delano has said to us, uh, 
Yes, all is knowing to pro- all is owing to providence. But the temper of my mind that morning was more than commonly pleasant. <laughs> of so much suffering, more apparent than real, added to my good nature, compassion, and charity. Like short version, seeing other people suffer really confirms for me my own good nature. Like that's just yeah. a great. That's just a great sense. And he says, oh, only at the end did my suspicions get the better of me. And you know how wide of the mark they then proved. And this is what happens. Wide indeed, said Don Benito sadly. You were with me all day, stood with me, sat with me, talked with me, looked at me, ate with me, drank with me, and yet your last act was to clutch for a monster, not only an innocent man, but the most pitiable of all men. And that, um, that like the repetitive cadence of the, you sat with me, mm-hmm. you ate with me, you drank with me, the second person addressed of you, that's it seems to me where Melville is most um, just grabbing the readers of Putnam Magazine yeah. by the mm-hmm. throat. Yeah. Like every day, your American life involves looking into the scene of exploitation and cruelty and injustice. And what do you constantly do? You clutch for a monster, the most pitiable of creatures. Yeah. That's who the fuck you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just the like outsized, sort of like, barely contained fury of those sentences. Just kind of every time I read it. Totally. No, and the fact that that's voiced by Benito Cerrito too, like that's yet another, because like, I like, like a lot of readers, I think are going to be like, yes, I, that is, I feel so bad for this fucking slave ship captain, right? Where it's like, it's like, yeah, yeah, oh, that's how you want to read it, asshole. It's like, no, 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 that you is talking about you and like the cruelty that you ignore every day. Yeah. That's, that's that's right up there with the, with, you know, the Melville quote about um, nothing is more comic than the uh, pronouncements upon the, the, uh, affairs of the poor by the well housed, the well fed, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Like, this is, I think, a real scene of Melville. Just when I look at America, I just see uh, a utterly commonplace, entirely naturalized gazing upon the scene of subjection and terror. Mm. And the impulse to clutch the victim of that terror as a monster. Mm. It's just, yeah. it's like, you know. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it's funny it teaches well not only to undergrads but I used to teach in like a like grown up class you know like like a humanity <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember doing this story and I would start to do it every couple of years and just getting to that being like this is this, this is second person this is you this is me mm-hmm. this is readership and then being like whoa <laughs> you know yeah. <laughs> and having the yeah. really desired effect of <laughs> Of like, whoa, man, that's heavy. Didn't think that was going to come down the pike here at eight o'clock on a Wednesday or whatever. Right. (laughs) Didn't think it would be really me. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Other me. Yeah. Okay. So, um, sorry, Pete, but I'm going to move us on to our final moments here. Let's do it. Katie, do you have a? I was going to say a fun game. I don't know if there's fun (laughs) to be had here, but. I mean, I would like to plot out the first season of Dad Did It, or you know, Dad. Probably having to do that. Dad definitely did it. Is such a good show. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Dude, that's a great subtitle for Twin Peaks. 
You know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I've seen that. Uh-huh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 a recurring motif on this show that I haven't seen anything, and Megan yells at me about it. Uh, Look, I was amazed that you knew who Black Flag was. <laughs> I know, I know yeah. things. <laughs> <laughs> I know things. He protested. That's great. <laughs> oh my god! From now on, I am totally going to subtitle the, the the Twin Peaks as the dad. P.S. The dad definitely did it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and it's naked. not always obvious to you from moment one. That's right. That's right. Making it different from this story. Yeah. Right. Okay, Katie, what are we doing? Um, well, I do have some I have I have some closing questions for you just to kind of see if you've really gotten yourselves into the mode of Benito Sereno, see if you've really absorbed it. Um, there are definite right answers here. Um, so <laughs> keep that in mind. Uh, here's this this is a special special edition of the closing questions. It's brought to you by Babo Shave Club, the only <laughs> subscription shave box specially designed for overthrowing your oppressors and sensitive skin. So just want to say huge thanks to Babo Shave Club. Uh, okay, but here here are your three questions. Okay. Question number one. After a long day out on the high seas, we could all use a subscription box service to help unwind. What gift would you send? A, you've heard of HelloFresh. Well, get ready for Goodbye Scurvy, the only <laughs> meal box that's just lemons. <laughs> B, Captain Crunch Monthly, where a more competent, observant, and wholesome ship captain cereal is delivered direct to your boat so that your crewmates can forget to seal it up properly and piss everyone off. Uh, or C, bath bombs. <laughs> Dude, I think it's C. I think it's C. Arm the C's. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, I'm concerned about them falling into the sea and being wasted because I have received lush bath bombs and they're like five bucks or something yeah. ridiculous. See, you, you you people are not shipheads, right? You're the bath. Bomb, I mean, and I'm I'm assuming this is an late 18th century vessel we're talking about, as we discussed at length in the Billy Butt episode, uh, which we, we we referenced your edition on that too, Pete. Uh, so uh, the stinkiest, the sti- men. yeah. There uh, there really are. I mean, you know, you can in tropical waters hang a sail over the side and go swimming. A bath bomb's not going to work, but dry goods. <laughs> is is they'll they'll keep forever. I mean, a bottle. I mean, with the amount of sugar and preservatives in, in Captain Crunch, that that's good for years. Uh, so that I mean, if you want to stay alive on your your circumnavigation, you you need to go with B. I'm I'm sorry. Katie's right though. Like somebody <laughs> on that boat is going to forget to close the bag before they close the top. <laughs> true. That's, that's true. Yeah, I, I feel very. I feel. Tristan, I feel. I feel sad that we've talked so little about the actual ship, which is honest to God, though I know nothing about ships, a thing I really do with Moby Dick, but with this. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, well, we're well. Our, our, to my other co-hosts, we're about to do Moby Dick, so they'll 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 have a chance to hear me talk about gems. <laughs> yeah, but I get to talk about na- the native subject, so it's like everybody gets their their. Th- and know, Katie but, gets to talk about religion. Yeah, but Moby Dick definitely has something something for everyone. The one thing I will say about sh- the most I say about ships is like, you know, I read that elaborate figure when he's like setting up the Gothicism of thing when it looks like a like a ruined castle in the Pyrenees. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. does a ship look anything like a castle? Like, <laughs> Ever? 
right. Right. What do you think is happening here in the narrative? Why would it be like, why would the castle of Otranto appear on the high fucking sea here? <laughs> it's everywhere. It's everywhere. That is really to make my, like, my uh, gothicism case, you know, that's, that's, that, you know, the, they all look like monks and everything like that. The gothicism uh, farce. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The gossip of uh, farce. That was really like, I mean, a long time ago when I started figuring like, oh, this is about like shifting between the gothic and the sentimental. Then the story started to tell me a different, tell me something other than a, a, a tale about my own stupidity, you know, which is <laughs> yeah. right, like, right, right. a long, long time. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I, you know, good news. I got good news for, um, you know, th- your your point that we didn't get too much to talk about the ship because um, question number two is actually is all about is all about ships. Oh, okay. so awesome. um, get excited <laughs> for this. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so the most beautiful boat you've ever seen sails into the room. What do you say to it? To win its heart. <laughs> A, that skeleton you're wearing really brings out your eyes. Uh-huh. B, are you okay? I noticed your top sails look like three ruinous aviaries and wanted to <laughs> offer you my assistance in removing some of those weird birds from your person. <laughs> uh-huh. Or C, nothing. You wait for it to approach you. And comment on the gorgeous yellow tone of your skin. You later get married and walk down the aisle to, you guessed it, Coldplay's yellow. <laughs> oh, man. The I, skeleton. I, yeah. <laughs> For sure, I mean, like, I didn't even ha- yeah. I heard that one and I was like, no, don't need I, B or C. Like, I, I want to show off my dorkdom and be like, well, the top sales one's cool. But no, I'm sorry. Like, with the, with the shroud falls from that fucking skeleton on the front, which is like, when you describe it, it sounds like it could be just so like over the top. Like this is like a pastiche of the Gothic and it kind of is, but it is also chilling as all fuck. And like I'm one of the coolest it. scenes I've seen it. I've read in American. Follow, literature. follow your leader. Yeah. So a so, definitely. Can you explain to me, this is a real question. Like how is it exactly that the covering, what, like what has to happen for the covering to get suddenly pulled away? Does a sail collapse or something like that? No, yeah, I think I think what they so the 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 figurehead is beneath the the, the bowsprit. Megatron, uh, <laughs> uh, I could Megatron later eyes. Um, the uh, and and I I think they've 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 hastily just like wrapped canvas around it to uh, okay. yeah, to you, you know like it's it, it's not like a sail should be there. It's like they see this this other vessel coming up. They're like, oh shit, we better do something about the skeleton. We've got. <laughs> The front. So they just wrap canvas around it. Um, and then in the, the, the fighting, it just gets cut away is I, I think. Oh, what, what, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause the narrative has to have it fall, right? Like, yeah. Cause the yeah, book it, said. Yeah. If it doesn't, if it doesn't fall dramatically, it's just not as cool. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That is, that's truly like, that's, that's definitely like metal as fuck moment in this story. You know? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. That that may be Melville at his most metal. Yeah. So we we all agree we <laughs> we all agreed that it's a. There's no other option there. Yeah. Okay, you all you are you're all agreed to a. Okay, so here's the th- here's your third and final question. This one is a f- this one is purely fact based. Um, how many times does the word poop appear in Benito Serino? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there's the phrase elevated poop. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. One. So you have, you have three choices. Uh, A, 15. 
B, 23. C, that word is rude and I shan't be participating further in this revolting quiz, madam. Wait, what are you? It's, but you can't, I can't um, um, that's shocking to me. That is, <laughs> I'm scandalized. Yeah, poop, yeah. I know, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, given how many times the word erect happens in Billy Budd, like, Oh my none God, of yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Bud. I do, I do love Billy. Furby it from Melville to a hedge. I'm, I'm going to guess B, right? Like B, that it was. It's the. It's the. It's the more the. It, it's the. It's the biggest number that you gave us. I think. Right. I mean, I think I'm going with A because I would never say that this is an inappropriate conversation. Like, it, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. Pete, so do you have Peter, a guess, or you Peter, think it's? I was just gonna say, I was gonna say one, but that shows you what I know, you know. <laughs> yeah, well. how, how many is it, Katie? Okay. Uh, well, it's it's fifteen. Okay, yes. 15. Oh, all right, Megan's right. See, Fourteen I, more than I would have guessed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and seeing as that was the only factual question, uh, Megan gets this. <laughs> I love to win something unwinnable. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, I mean, you know. <laughs> well, congrats! I mean, congratulations uh, to, to all of you. You're all winners to me. That's that's very kind of you. Here in these like early pandemic days, we got to take what we can get. You know? No, totally. That's, that's right. the truth. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, yeah. As far as like, you know, the claustrophobia of a ship. Yeah, I get it. Totally. Sure. Yeah. No, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And li- yeah. listen to listen to podcasts for 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 friends and socialization <laughs> in these dark times. Right. <laughs> that and uh, remote cocktail parties. Totally. Yes. Yeah. I think that's all we need. I made sure that I had an extra bottle of whiskey, and now I feel fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, we went out early this morning. We're like, we should probably not go out again for at least a week, so we should do some shopping. We went out yeah. early this morning. I just want to tell you the most alarming thing, like a genuinely alarming thing. There's no garlic. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah, dude. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was not a happen. We just Damn. bought a few bulbs, so, but, um, yeah. Well, to the I, 11 listeners who live on the northwest side, there is some at the Cermak Market on diversity and Pulaski. <laughs> or at least there was weeks ago when this was recorded, <laughs> not in the total collapse of civilization when you were yeah, listening to this. <laughs> on Earth One, there was garlic at that grocery store. Yeah, yeah. Good Lord. Yeah, there's a cinnamon, like, what day is today? Tuesday? Yep, Tuesday. Yep. <laughs> it was definitely last it's, a ti- it's a time warp, so yeah. that's why we don't know. Uh, yeah. It was eight days ago when I was teaching Benito Torino that I said, hey, you know, my sense is we're probably not going to meet after spring break. And then two days later, I was like, dudes, this is it. We got to, it's been lovely talking to you, but I don't think we're going to meet anymore. And we had to do like a, like a steeplechase through, uh, which was actually a lot of fun. Yeah. You could see that even the sort of abbreviated version would be fun. Yeah. I mean, if you've taught like, like start with Thomas Jefferson, then do Phyllis Wheatley, then do What to the Slaves of the Fourth of July, Moby Dick, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Then when they hit Benito Serena, which is easier to read than most of those other ones, mm-hmm. it just like uh, uh, things begin to open up really. Mm-hmm. So it was great to talk about. It, it was also sad because, you know, like, I don't know, like 30, 40 kids talked in a class of 90, which is, as you guys know, a lot. 
Yeah. But then, oh, yeah. Yeah. Then we were no, then we're just no longer in each other's company, which is oh. a bit of a, yeah. which is a bit of a bummer, you know? Oh yeah. yeah. Because you guys are, had the, the, did your semesters all finish? Or quarters, I should say. Well, yeah, I, yeah, we had, so I, yeah, I made, uh, as a, did a lot of instructors, final paper optional. Um, yeah, yeah, cause yeah. you know, I've got, I've got students going to the other side of the world right now, sure, you yeah. know, like, um, and then, and then allegedly we're going to start the, the spring quarter is going to start on April 6th, but I, who knows? I mean, I don't really know how I'm going to teach water lily and a series of Edwin Curtis photographs because how do you, I have to figure out how to teach photographs. I, Okay. It's going to be kind of a nightmare. Yeah. yeah okay. Whole, well, I work with sorry. code all day. So. <laughs> yeah. The whole, we got no, uh, no everyone's term. remote anyway. Yeah. <laughs> the whole term seems very hard to me. Like, I feel like they did nine, 10 weeks. They're mostly done. You know, now yeah. it's going to be guided reading and I'm happy to do that. And, you know, they're going to turn in a paper and their second last paper will be optional, whatever, whatever. Like starting beginning to end the whole term, that shit is hard. Oh yeah. 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 It'll be weird. I'll feel like we don't get to have our little uh, community that I love to have in the, those rooms. Yeah. Yeah. The end of the yeah, comments. That, yeah. You know how at the end, of, you know how when you do teach class at the end of class, even if they've been annoying or terrible classes, <laughs> the very end, you feel a sort of like fleeting tenderness for that particular collection yeah. of the, people. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was really, that, that was six days ago, you know, like, hey, I'm sorry, but yeah. we're, we're done here. You know? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. You it's know? the end of pedagogy as we knew it. Yeah. And hopefully it will return. Oh, let's hope. Okay. Stop, so stop. on that lovely, you know, I hope that all of our listeners are engaging in fun activities involving um, plenty of BDSM and, uh, <laughs> and podcasting. Whatever um, else you do. In Anything. your home, in your home, yeah, in your yes, home. yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. I'm just saying these are these are uh, activities that are, you know, practical at home. Yes, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so thank you, Pete, again for joining us. I think it was oh, really fun. Thanks so, much. thanks so much for for talking. This was a this was a pleasure. I'm just delighted to talk with you guys. Okay, thank so, you so much. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. Seriously. And uh, this has been Better Red Than Dead. Uh, you can find Pete on Twitter at pcoviel, two L's. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find me on Twitter at Tesslersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Better Red Pod, spelled R-E-A-D, and email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com, but only if it's to share your personal story of how much you felt like an absolute asshole the first time you realized what was happening in this book. Uh, our intro music is Left Bronstein. It's by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo is created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Rate, review, subscribe. Thank you very much. And next week, continuing our Melville extravaganza, we have the first of two episodes on Moby Dick, which unlike Ulysses, we all love. <laughs> <laughs> and so you want to join us for that. Um, thanks, comrades. Bye.